for me, it's about how are you asking questions that elicit responses that create an emotional connection with your audience. Welcome to the Sports Business Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Berger. You can find the Sports Business Radio Podcast over 14 years, 500 episodes featuring conversations with people like Mark Cuban, David Stern, Jeannie Buss, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicholas, and Kyrie Irving on iTunes or at sportsbusinessradio.com. We're ranked in the top 100 of the business news podcast section on iTunes. Follow us in between podcasts on Twitter at SB Radio. We've been named a top 50 followed by Forbes.com for three consecutive years and on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. My guest is someone who has become a friend, someone I've admired from afar for a long time. She's a longtime sports journalist. She's worked for ESPN and ABC, CBS. She served as an executive with Campus Insiders. She has her own company, Walk Swiftly Productions. You can follow her on Twitter at Bonnie Bernstein. She's another BB. Bonnie, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm well, and listening to you try to say the name of my production company makes me think maybe I should have come up with something that's easier to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's good. Walk swiftly production. But if you try to say it all together, walk swiftly. So wait, why the name? Let's start there. Why walk swiftly? How'd you come up with that? Okay, so when the time comes to finally write the book, the book, the name of the book will be Walk Swiftly with Purpose. Okay. And and the story behind that is that I live in New York. Uh, if you've spent time in New York, you know that uh, New Yorkers tend to be rather fast-paced and focused. And I was walking on 57th, close to 5th Avenue one day, and I just you know took the time to observe the surroundings. And I realized that if you just watch people walking down the street, you can actually get a sense for their personality or what's on their mind. It's, it's sort of my, my walking version of Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, where you can make that snap judgment immediately about somebody, because you can tell if somebody's walking swiftly with their head down, they're trying to get someplace, or they're deep in thought, or they're on a mission, uh, and you know, other people may be a bit more lackadaisical in their pace, maybe more leisurely, and you know, so I just, it was an observation I made that for whatever reason resonated with me, maybe that the type A in me resonated with, and so, yeah, I production companies, they tell you to come up with something original, so that was the best I can do on the day that I was on the phone with my attorney trying to figure out how we were going to call this LLC. I like it, and we'll come there back to uh, <laughs> being an entrepreneur later in the conversation. So you and I have really gotten to know each other in the last few years. Uh, you've been a part of my Sports PR Summit event. You do such a great job conducting the on-stage conversations. We'll talk about the conversation you're going to be moderating this year in a little bit. But I want to talk about your career because, again, like I said, you're someone I've admired from afar for a long time. And you've really been a trailblazer in this industry for female sportscasters. And at what age did you say, you know what, I love sports, I might want to be a sportscaster one day. Was that something that you knew early on, or did it come later? No, I had a very specific epiphany that went down when I was 12 or 13. My parents were born and bred in Brooklyn, and they were diehard Dodgers fans, but when they bolted to the West Coast, um, there was a, a bit of a gap. They weren't going to be Yankees fans, and when the Mets came along, that was their team. And so by birth, 
I was a Mets fan, and my parents would take me and my sister and brother a couple times a year to a game. And and I say this bearing in mind that, you know, it, it truly was <laughs> a day and age when things were a little bit safer. And so I'd tell my parents I was going to go to the restroom, and lo and behold, I would wind up exploring every inch of Shea Stadium. <laughs> and one day uh, I stumbled upon what was called the Diamond Club. And I walked through the glass doors, and to my left there was the Mets World Series trophy. There was only one pre-1986 from the late 60s. And um, and then on the other side of the room I saw a security guard. So my little 12-, 13-year-old self walked up to the security guard in my little ponytails, and I said, what are you doing, sir? He said, I'm guarding the press box. I said, what's the press box? So he escorted me into the press box and let me hang out there for a little while, and I sat in the chair where the Sports Illustrated reporter was covering the game that night, watched the Mets take BP, and I was sold. And that was just sort of my my aha moment that I realized that I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated when I grew up. And while I've, you know, shifted a little bit and obviously wound up in broadcasting, uh, I realized very early on that sports was a passion that if I was lucky enough, I would make a career out of. And um, fortunately, I'm somehow able to pay my mortgage. So that's a good thing, right? (laughs) It is a good thing. So you were an athlete, too, a college athlete. You were an academic All-America in gymnastics at University of Maryland. How did being an athlete help you for now your your role as a sportscaster and working in sports? It's been critical, and it's the one thing that I always share when people say, well, women shouldn't be talking about football because they play football. First and foremost, I would say a good chunk of the male reporters who cover football didn't play either. Um, but I think what being able to compete at a Division One level in any sport gives you the ability to do is live in the mindset of a highly competitive athlete because that's not really sport-specific. That competitive mentality um, not only makes you successful as an athlete, but, you know, when you think about it, that's a, a critical life skill, helps make you successful in your adult life, in your professional life. And so I think going through that experience, as a collegiate gymnast where there would be three days a week where we were up at 6 o'clock either lifting or running on the track, and we would be in the gym training three hours a day. And my coach um, placed a heavy emphasis on academic achievement, and he was extraordinarily accommodating. You know, he would, if we had exams to study for, he would even come in and let us train early, but we always had to get the training in. And so these skills of developing a work ethic, being a good team player, understanding the importance of time management and how you have to juggle things to make it all work, Um, and the mentality, that, that psychological, that mindset that you have to have to just shut everything out. And think about it for gymnastics, and, you know, I think arguably the most difficult event is the balance beam, where it's four inches wide, and you are doing tricks that are of high difficulty, of high risk. You have to shut everything out in order to be able to succeed on that apparatus and, you know, in in anything, in any sport. And so that, I, I think that skill set that you develop when you compete at that high of a level has been so valuable in, in just being able to relate to athletes, to coaches, to folks in management when I'm talking to them on a daily basis. 
No, that's really good to compare that skill set. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, you've really been one of the trailblazers for women in sports casting. In 1993, KRNV-TV in Reno, Nevada, you became the first <laughs> ever female weekday sports anchor. What was that like? It was completely unanticipated. So to back it up a little bit further, and I I think it's helpful, especially for young, aspiring journalists to understand, you know, I I hear, come across so many folks who say, oh, you know, I want to work at ESPN when I grow up. Maybe that's a little bit different now because there are so many different platforms. And they're so singularly focused on making it in TV that they may turn down other opportunities in radio, in print, maybe in public relations. Maybe it's not exactly what they're focused on, but they don't realize the value of the opportunity. So before I got to KRNV in Reno, my first job out of school was at a startup country radio station. Nice. <laughs> I was the news and sports director. <laughs> um, and, you know, drove around in a big white van with a big old cowboy boot on it, and it was Kicks 106, and I would literally traipse up and down the entire state of Delaware covering <laughs> sports <laughs> and news. And it was an invaluable experience. And then stayed in the same market, eastern shore of Maryland, Delaware, and went to Salisbury, Maryland, where I was hired as a general assignment news reporter and then became the weekend anchor also in news. So by the time I got to KRNV, I had already started developing my um, news reporting chops because I covered the government beat, I covered the court beat, I covered the cop beat, which is all essential when you think about how much crossover there is uh, these days. Um, news-related sports stories or sports-related news stories, however you want to look at it, having you know having that reporting experience is valuable. When I got <laughs> the opportunity to switch from general assignment news to full-time sports at Channel 4 in Reno, which was the NBC affiliate, I was actually leaving. I, I decided that I really wanted to be in sports full-time, and I was just sort of volunteering on the weekends, but I knew ultimately that's where my, my passion was. And so I was shopping my tapes around, and this was around the time when the Orlando Magic was starting up. And I was offered a position at the CBS affiliate. Um, they were adding another reporter in Orlando, and I I'd committed to taking that job. So I came back. I went to my GM's office to tell him I was leaving, and he goes, well, what you don't realize is, first of all, we knew you were away <laughs> interviewing for another job. But while you were gone, we also decided that we were going to promote you. So you need to stay. And, I mean, I, when you're working in these teeny tiny markets and of the 200-some-odd media markets, mm-hmm. um, Reno was like 120. <laughs> yeah. Not high on the list. No. So they don't, you know, they don't give you contracts or anything. You're not obligated to do anything. But... You know, understanding that there, to that point, was not a female who was given the opportunity to anchor Monday through Friday. I did want to really start honing my anchoring skills because at that point I was predominantly reporting. And I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay. And so I did for another, I think, half year or so. And it was such a great decision because, you know, I, I take the, the term trailblazing. Um, very graciously, it's uh, maybe I, I kind of joke that it's it's more a byproduct of me being around in the business more than it is me actually blazing a trail. Because when I think of a trailblazer, I think of you know uh, Leslie Visser and Gail Gardner and and the women, albeit there weren't many, but the women that I looked up to when I was younger. But 
it was meaningful because it was a first. It was meaningful because while it was a first, the community really embraced it. Um, and I worked really hard to build roots in the community. And to this day, Bri, it's really cool because I will get hit up on Twitter from somebody who lives in Reno and still lives in Reno and said, you know, we remember watching you on Oh, that's great. And, and we're just excited to see where your career has gone. So it that's was so a, it cool. Was, it was a really special time. Is there anyone around that time when you were first starting out in the business that mentored you and you said, gosh, their advice or their mentorship really made a difference for me? Oh, my gosh, no. I There were people I looked up to and there were people I tried, um, especially from a work ethic standpoint and a credibility standpoint, that I tried to emulate. But when I was working in local radio and local TV, I, I didn't have anybody. Uh, and I really didn't have anybody, quite frankly, until I got to CBS. So I was at ESPN three years, and I was just trying to figure it out on my own. ESPN hired me when I was 24. And while I had met Leslie Visser, funny enough, my senior year at the University of Maryland, I was interning. Um, if some of your podcast listeners are in their you know, late 30s, 40s, and a little bit older, they'll, they may remember George Michael's sports machine. Oh, yeah. So I interned for George, who was the sports director. He was a legend. Played in D.C. Oh my gosh! Yeah, he was. It was. It was Sports Center before it was. I mean, right. ESPN started when it was seventy nine, but you know, it took a while to to build traction and stuff. But you know, George was a legend, and I was out at Redskins Park one day, and that's when I first met Leslie Visser, and and I was like the total fan girl. Oh my god, I want to be like you when I grow up. And she gave me her business card, and she was lovely, and I let her know when I got for my first job at the radio station in Delaware. But you know, we really didn't have regular contact, and maybe that's on me because. You know, I I always talk to um, aspiring sportscasters and women in particular about, you know, making your ambition a daily commitment. And I was ambitious, but I didn't really yet understand the value of building the network and, and for having mentors. So I didn't truly have a mentor until I was 28. And it's something, Brian, I think about all the time because inevitably – uh, we all make mistakes, and that's part of growing up. And we and and life is a continual process of evolution. But if you have the right mentor who is open to sharing the peaks and valleys of his or her career, it's it is it's insightful and it's empowering, and it can actually, to a certain degree, help um, help you carve your path. Because when you hear about other people's stories, other bumps in the road they hit, other challenges, and what that experience was like, and how they worked to overcome them, you know, it, it puts you in a place where you know what to expect, and you know how to react accordingly, whereas if you were not empowered with that information, it just sort of hits you in the face, and you're like, whoa. So um, mentoring has become so important to me. Um, and it's something that I take very seriously. And um, there are actually a couple um, women out there who are rising up the ranks and, um, you know, aspiring journalists at the University of Maryland. And it's it's really a fulfilling experience anytime I have the, the chance to connect with them and, you know, listen to what they're doing, watch what they're doing, critique their tapes, and, and you know, try to share stories and anecdotes that are hopefully helpful to them. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. 
Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Now back to our conversation. I, I want to get into some uh, details with you on a few different topics. First of all, and, and I've talked to Tom Rinaldi and John Wertheim and other people about this, Give me your recipe for effective storytelling. If someone comes to you and they're either pitching you a story or you're looking to come up with a interesting story on your own, give me some of your recipe for effective storytelling. Well, for Rinaldi, I know it's just do whatever you need to do to make him cry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because he's so good at it. And when you had him at the summit last year, he was so riveting. Yeah, he really was. amazing how... Um, attentive, the entire audience, how everybody was like hanging on Tom's every word. And he truly is one of the best. Um, For me, it's about how are you asking questions that elicit responses that create an emotional connection with your audience? Like my goal when I go in to do any interview, a couple of things. You want to make them laugh, you want to make them cry. But most important, you want the most ardent fan of the person or the team that you're talking to to come away saying, huh, for as much as I know about that person or team or whoever it is that you're interviewing, I learned something I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? That comes from preparation. And my mantra is make sure that you are going beyond page one of search. We have so much information at our fingertips. And how do we leverage that information to have the most fascinating, intriguing, insightful, colorful, meaningful interviews that we can. So part of that is doing search and and going beyond page one to come up with some little nugget of information that's probably pretty meaningful to the interviewee, but they probably don't get asked about it. Another great tool is, you know, call people you know that that other person knows and ask them to share about their experiences and their times with that person. Because then when you, when it comes full circle when you reference that conversation with the person you're interviewing. And number one, it makes their face light up. Number two, it says, wow, you've really done your homework. And when the person on the other side of the camera realizes, or, you know, if you're doing a phone interview or what have you, but there's there's this moment when they realize this isn't just the average run-of-the-mill interview. And when they understand that you went the extra mile to make this interview the best it could possibly be, it's amazing, Brian, the way the dynamic changes. And, and there's this initial, and understandably so, 
Um, there's this initial wall that's up when you're interviewing somebody for the first time. Now, I, I'd like to think I have that the type of personality that hopefully makes people feel comfortable, but sometimes that, that doesn't even impact it. But when they realize that you've gone the extra mile to do the preparation, something clicks and they're able to relax and they're able to open up. And, and those truly are the best types of interviews. So when it comes to storytelling, that sort of... Um, Hopefully that gives you a little bit of a window into my process. And the net of that is that they share anecdotes that are new and fresh and very personal to them. And that enables the interview to create an emotional connection with the audience. No, I couldn't agree more. I think preparation is something that's so underrated. So many people don't do it. You're right. It is pretty easy to search for someone's uh, information on the internet now and, and find those little nuggets. I think it's great advice to talk to other people who know the person that you're going to be interviewing. One of the things that you're really good at is conducting the quick hit interview. So you were a sideline reporter, NCAA tournament, NFL games, NCAA games for many, many years. And it's so hard. I've talked to Tom about this too, because you have such a finite amount of time. It's like, hey, we're going to throw to you for 45 seconds, and you've got to... You know that person has, they don't want anything to do with you. Right. <laughs> Which so, is so, a bonus, right? <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah, like Greg Popovich. What's your advice there when you have such a small window of time to interview someone, and you're trying to get something good for your, your viewer or your listener? Well, you have a small amount of time to do the interview, but you have an entire half to figure out what you're going to say. So make the most of it. I have uh, a bit of a quirky process. I literally log every play in a game. So you can imagine when, like, Peyton Manning was running no huddle, hurry up, and waving his arms and flapping. You never know when the ball is going to snap, and you're just like, oh, my God, this is crazy. I, my hand, when I would cover Colts games or when I would cover an Oregon game when they're running tempo, my hand is so tired <laughs> from writing but that is part of the process because not only do i log every play but i have i'll just stick with football for example so i circle every third down because that enables me to quickly calculate what third down conversion looks like i put a box around um, a big tackle or a sack so, you know, I, I have these little symbols or I'll put a star by a huge play. And then I have a separate page where I start making notes about patterns or critical points in a game. So as I'm closing in on halftime, I'll go back and, and I'm constantly keeping tabs on that list. Say, okay, is this still important? Because, you know, sometimes something that's important early in the game, something else has happened that takes precedence. So I'm constantly keeping tabs on that list. So by the time I get to that actual very teeny tiny window when the person you're interviewing doesn't want to talk to you, I know where I need to go. So that's part one. But part two is always keeping in mind that the reporter is the voice of the fan. Your number one priority is asking the question that the fan wants to know. So between my list and always keeping the fan's perspective in mind, it's actually pretty easy to come up with the question, except when there's a huge play just before halftime that nobody anticipated, <laughs> and then all of those notes and all that logging goes out the window, and right. then you can just forget about what I said the last 45 seconds. But, but then th it also makes it obvious, right, because you want to be able to capture that excitement of what literally just happened and tap the coach or tap the player or whatever for that. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. That, I mean, 
But that's I like your process. I like the fact that because you can it's go back. Ridiculous. It's a ridiculous. There's got to be an app though, you know right? What? Where you can just like talk into your iPhone and and transcribe it that way, so your hand doesn't hurt at the end of the half, right? Yeah, especially in cold weather, because nobody thinks about this. Cold weather games suck. You can't talk. You try <laughs> your your face is frozen, so you try to enunciate as best as you can, and it comes out as though you were born and raised on Mars. And then you can't write, or if it's raining. You're all, it just, the mother nature does a job on your notes. So there are all these things that you learn as a sideline reporter that I'm sure the fan at home doesn't think about, and they don't, probably don't care, nor should they. But Lord knows there are the elements that make <laughs> the job of a sideline reporter way more challenging than it ever needs to be. Um, but that said, I, I say all of that tongue-in-cheek because at the end of the day, the access that you have as a sideline reporter, being on the field, being privy to conversations that the cameras don't catch, and the opportunity to relay that, whether that's actually on the broadcast or now, um, you know, you have another channel through social media. It it really is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and I'm, I'm so grateful for the 10 years that I did it. Bonnie, we are in the midst of the Me Too and Time's Up era. We're going to talk oh, about your... It, it's it's great. And, you know, again, you and I have talked. I have a 13-year-old daughter. I have four sisters. Like, I think this has been long overdue. And I want to talk about the panel discussion that you're going to moderate at Sports PR Summit. Before I get there, you have faced adversity that I've never had to face. I'm a man in a sports world. When you are going to interview mostly men, because that's who's coaching these teams, how do you earn their respect Show them that you're more than just a pretty face and get them to take you seriously. Because, again, that's something I've never had to uh, endure. And I can't imagine coming from, you know, where you've come from to earn that respect now, what that process has been like. Uh, it's an interesting process, and it's something that I thought a lot about when I was younger. So preparation is key, like everything else. When I would sit down with somebody for the first time in the small talk when you were getting mic'd up and they were adjusting camera shots and lights and all that stuff, I'd just start talking X's and O's. I would reference something that happened in the game last week or something that I happened to see on film with Phil Sims when I was sitting in the film room and he was pointing stuff out to me. So that says immediately... She's serious. Right. But back it up, even even before we start having that conversation, whenever, and this is it's not exclusive to interviews, but whenever I meet somebody, firm handshake, look them in the eye, and smile. It's amazing. It's, it's almost a dichotomy because for a woman, I probably have a pretty firm handshake, but you make that eye contact and you have a smile, and it says, I'm a positive person. I'm excited to be here. But that handshake says, I mean business. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you do that. And then you do the small talk X's and O's. So by the time the interview starts and the cameras are rolling, the environment's been set. Now what do you do with it? So, you know, it's all that the public sees are the excerpts from the entire interview that we choose to use. But there is so much stuff that you don't see that plays a role 
and the quality of interview that you do see, if that makes sense. No, and I think that's such great advice. We have so many uh, journalism students who listen to this show, and I, I think the advice you just gave is like golden. I would red flag it for anyone listening to this. On May 22 in New York at the Players' Tribune, the 2018 Sports PR Summit is going to take place. You did such a great job last year interviewing Oliver Luck from the NCAA on stage. You've been at our event in San Francisco at Twitter. Um, this I think is going to be, if not the most important, one of the most important conversations we've had at Sports PR Summit in six years. And it's called Navigating PR in the Zero Tolerance Era. There's so many challenges that PR people, legal departments, and HR executives are having in this era right now. Because you've kind of got the PR people who may want to be transparent, but they can't say certain things because of... HR or legal saying, nope, we can't say anything. This is a legal case. And there's all these different dynamics in play. But, you know, maybe give our, our audience a little bit of a preview as to what that conversation at Sports PR Summit is going to be like. You articulating it makes me nervous. I, I'm, I, <laughs> it's funny because I honestly, Brian, I so many folks have asked over the course of, you know, 20 some odd years. You never seem nervous. Were you ever nervous? I've never been nervous on the air. I was a little bit jittery. The first Super Bowl I ever did, um, it was Giants-Ravens. Giants got blown out. Giants from my team. I was on the Giants' sideline. And when I was getting ready to interview Jim Fossil, I was a little bit nervous. The next time I was super nervous was giving my uh, maid of honor speech for my sister's wedding. This panel has me nervous, and it has me nervous because I know how important it is. You know, the, the Harvey Weinstein case has put us societally in a position where we need to talk about this stuff now. It was, it was hidden under the rug for so many years. It's not just in the Hollywood industry. It's not just in the broadcast industry. It's not just on Wall Street. It is pervasive. It is everywhere. And, and the summit that you put on is one of the best in the business because it is all high-level executives who've been down these roads. They're all dealing with the same challenges, and they come to your event because they want to hear rich, robust, meaningful, impactful conversations where we come out of these panels with, you know, actionable items that they can then take back to their respective workplaces. And you know, you and I have talked about this, and, and I've spoken about it at length already with some of our panelists, and we really need to stick to PR and communications because it's so easy for this conversation to go off the rails and get into, you know, what we do from a legal perspective, from an HR perspective, personal stories, and all of those things. But we have to focus on PR. And it's not just Me Too, and I know we sort of tooled around with calling it zero, you know, um, PR communications in the Me Too era. And it's not just about women. It's about a culture that is now being brought to light in our industry and how the messaging from a PR and communications standpoint needs to evolve. You know, in this day and age of social media, you can't get away with no comment anymore because no comment sounds like an admission or a concession of guilt and whether that's true or not. And we can, we can pound the importance of due process till the cows come home. But you know what? The court of public opinion, if they make that decision before due process takes place, you as a company are screwed. And so 
how does PR and communications, those departments, function in a way where there is uh, important and transparent messaging going out to the public, but they, they are not infuriating the legal folks. Um, furthermore, how the messaging goes out can't sound like legalese because it's a massive red flag in the public. Um, I remember, and, and you and I spoke specifically about the statement that USOC put out mandating that, you know, in the, in the wake of the whole Larry Nasser case in gymnastics, that, you know, USA Gymnastics, their entire board needed to step down. And there was specific language in that statement that said, you know, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, um, you know, this isn't an admission of guilt. This is more about, you know, creating a new culture. And, and the language, it was just, you read it and you're like, oh, gosh, you know that came straight from general counsel, right? Right. And, and, and so that's the reality. We can't deny that. It's, uh, the lawyer's job at any company is to protect <laughs> the company from litigation and to limit liability, and we get that. But how do we create a balance between um, effective, uh, transparent, empathetic messaging that will resonate in a positive way with your audience, with the public, that says, we recognize this. We are doing the very best we can as quickly as we can to get to the bottom of it, but we want you to know that we see what's going on, we hear what's going on, and we're going to address what's going on, which when I articulate it, it sounds really simple, but it is so inexplicably complicated that I think just having the voices on the panel and putting the questions out there and and soliciting questions from the audience, um, I hope will be uh, a really positive and powerful exercise for all of us. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have an incredible panel. You've got Jamie Messler. <laughs> no, you're going to do you're going to do great. The hardest thing with these things is, you know, it's a 50-minute conversation. So it's so hard to fit everything into 50 minutes. But you also don't want to go 2 hours and having people look at their watches and going, "God, when is this thing going to end?" You know, you you want them leaving wanting more. But you're going to have Jamie Messler, who's the president of the Players Tribune on your panel, Kerry Potts from uh ESPN who has such an amazing backstory and is such a talented PR person. David Cohen, who is a longtime uh, sports legal expert. He's worked for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Los Angeles Angels. And then Ted Cruz, who, by many people's opinion, is the best uh, team PR person in the NFL with the Kansas City Chiefs. He's their VP of communication. So you've got an all-star panel with different perspectives and I think it's going to be really good. And, you know, the the examples I look at recently, Bonnie, if you look at, like, the Carolina Panthers and the position they were in with Jerry Richardson. So John Wertheim was on my show last week. And, you know, that story breaks. And you've got PR people who have to deal with a really negative story about your owner. And, by the way, this owner is signing your paychecks. So yeah. what do you do there? And then I look at Tom Izzo now in the wake of the whole uh, Dr. Nassar scandal. And every time he speaks, I don't believe him. And he sounds like a lawyer. You can tell someone messaged him and they said, you can and can't say this. And, you know, now he's even at a point where he's like, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. And I think people want transparency and they want believability. And as soon as no, they I, as soon as they no, see they don't have that, they're they're like, I don't know if I respect or believe you anymore. But there's another critical piece of the Tom Izzo story, and it's that well, yes, he's totally over-messaged now, but that's in part because they didn't get to him soon enough. 
And that, that's one of the things that we need to talk about. So when, when crisis hits, I think, and we'll talk about this, one of the most critical elements of handling it is immediately identifying who is potentially going to be in front of a microphone that you know will be asked about this case. Guess what? Tom Izzo is one of those guys. You are smack dab in the middle of basketball season. So how, when this was going down, they didn't have a conversation with Izzo saying, you're going to be asked about this and let's talk about it. I I don't know how that happens. I'll tell you how. You want to know how? And and I'm going to be critical here for a minute. SIDs are not equipped for strategy or crisis. They're great at getting you your press credential. They're great at getting you your seat on press row. They can get you the interview after the game. They can set up a press conference. If you have to do anything more than that, they are not very strong. There's a few. I don't want to generalize and say all, but most do not anticipate that kind of strategy that you just described. Oh, gosh, we better arm Tom Izzo and even Mark D'Antonio, who's not in season, who's going to be asked about this. Oh, and by the this. way, they're board of trustees, too. And that ding-a-ling went on the air on radio and said, oh, you know, we literally spent 10 minutes talking about our president. And I've been here 30 years, and she's the best president we've ever had because she raised $30 million for the Breslin Center. I, I, you, you can't even misconstrue that quote. Right. You know, how on earth is anybody on the board permitted to go on local radio and pontificate in that sort of way in the middle of crisis? But your point raises another interesting question, which is where do crisis management experts fit in this picture? So you got two options. You could have somebody in-house. I mean, in theory, you would like to have somebody running your media relations department who has experience in crisis management, which really is, to your point, a completely different skill set. So that, that's your, your pie-in-the-sky thing. You've got somebody with experience. But if not, do you hire somebody? Does, does a crisis management person get added to your headcount, or do you outsource it? If you do the latter, therein lies another challenge, because that person's going to come in cold and have to get a quick read on the situation, and he doesn't have any time to cultivate the trust of the people he's directing or she is directing. So, I mean, it's, it, again, is complicated. Uh, media relations department, by and large, are only staffed as much as they need to be. They're not traditionally high-paying positions. I don't know that there's the financial bandwidth to bring in somebody like that, but what do you do? So, you know, I think that's going to be another really critical uh, part of the conversation as well. Well, what's happening more on college campuses is they're hiring CCOs, so chief communications officers. Because after, you know, what we've seen at Penn State and who, by the way, Penn State paid Edelman millions of dollars to come in as outside counsel and help them. Yeah, (laughs) I'm not going to I'm not going to dig a hole on that one because I have some friends there. But uh, yeah. CCO is becoming a more popular hire on university campuses, not only for if something goes wrong in the athletic department, but if something goes wrong on campus, period. Before, it was just, like you said, that low-paying person in PR in the president's office, or it was the SID, and if crises arose, you were like, oh, God, what do I do now? Like, I've never had to handle something like this before. So people are trying to get out in front of it a little bit more, but there's still so many people. And, and the Michigan State example we just gave is a great example of how they mishandled that. But, you know, going back to that Carolina Panthers example or even the Dallas Mavericks example, when it deals with your owner, 
now you've got this inherent conflict, right? You you have to be transparent and you have to address this, but you're also being very careful not to throw the guy or woman under the bus who signs your checks. Like that's a tough position to be in. At that point, and and again, you sort of have to weigh um, the type of accusations, the number of accusations. An owner is, you know, an employer and as should be treated, in my mind, no different than any other employee because whether it is a low-level assistant or an owner, once those sorts of accusations go public, you're dealing with an image problem. Now, is the image problem amplified if it is the team owner? Sure. But when you're dealing with um, the sort of culture that's now being brought to light, any hit on your company isn't a good look. Now, it's a lot easier to, you know, fire the lower-level employee than it is for, you know, the decision to be made that an owner is stepping down or an owner selling the team or whatever the situation is. But I, I think it's important to not look at who is alleged to have committed a crime or, um, you know, an act of behavior that is not healthy Um but acknowledge the fact that it's happening inside your workplace. And and maybe part of that is the way we discuss how we can evolve the messaging. Because, I mean, I understand your point about how we have to tiptoe around how we're going to message the fact that an owner's uh, allegedly in hot water. But in the grand scheme of things, allegations are allegations. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Reserve your spot for the 2018 Sports PR Summit presented by the Players' Tribune on Tuesday, May 22nd at the Players' Tribune headquarters in New York City. The Sports PR Summit brings together elite athletes, national media members, and senior PR and social media executives for panel discussions, featured conversations, and networking opportunities. The event allows PR execs to lead with a better understanding of the elite athletes, owners, commissioners, and national media people they're working with. The event also allows attendees to see Derek Jeter's one-of-a-kind digital publishing company, The Players' Tribune, up close, as well as network with top Players' Tribune executives. Past Sports PR Summit speakers include NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, NASCAR legend Jeff Gordon, Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross, NFL stars Anquan Bolden and Demarcus Ware, Cleveland Cavaliers all-star Isaiah Thomas, WNBA legend Lisa Leslie, ESPN reporters Tom Rinaldi and Jeremy Schapp, and Sports Illustrated executive editor and 60 Minutes correspondent John Wartime. The Sports PR Summit has sold out each of its first five years, and there are only 125 spots. Reserve your spot today by going online to sportsprsummit.com. Follow the Sports PR Summit on Twitter and Instagram at Sports PR Summit. I hope to see you on May 22nd at the Players' Tribune in New York City. Now back to our conversation. So if you want to come to Sports PR Summit, if you work in PR, social I'm media... the fun, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> sportsprsummit.com is where you can... Uh, Get your ticket. It's an invite-only event, Players' Tribune. Uh, you're going to do a great job. I want to be respectful of your time, Bonnie, but I have a few other questions I want to get to before we uh, let you move on to your day. Let's do it. So you're an entrepreneur like I am, and I know I have a set of things that I'm looking for. If someone comes to me and they go, Brian, I want you to invest in this, or I want you to be a partner on that, or I want you to start this, what is on that list for you if someone comes to you with a project and they, and they say, Bonnie, I want you involved? 
I had a really fascinating conversation that has changed my view on this um, appreciably about, I don't know, a month and a half ago. There is a fellow Maryland alumni, uh, a Maryland alum by the name of Wayne Kimmel, who um, I went to college with, graduated the same year. We both worked at WMUC, our campus radio station, but, you know, we lost touch. And I've been having some really interesting conversations uh, with venture capitalists about investing in my company, actually. And so I was at this networking event in New York, and Wayne and I reconnected. And I asked him specifically, what is your criteria for investment? Give me your you know, top five priorities when you are having conversations and doing your diligence. And he said, number one thing is, are they nice? And then he stopped. And I said, really? You're like, that's it? <laughs> that's it? Well, that wasn't it. But that, that was number one on his list. And, and honestly, Brian, it blew me away because when I think of the investment world, the finance world, you know, I think Wolf of Wall Street and it's just, you know, dudes with slick back hair and they're super serious and they're going to do whatever they need to do. And nice is not anywhere in that conversation. It's kind of a bonus, but it's not a priority. And he just said nice. And I said, why? And he goes, it's really obvious, but nobody thinks about it. Because we, we are inclined to want to invest in the smartest people or what we sense is the greatest idea or, you know, what will produce the greatest profit margin or, you know, whatever that traditional list is. <clears throat> so, but at the end of the day, we're investing in people. And if you don't like the people, it's not going to be a good investment, no matter how much money you make, because you're not going to enjoy the experience. And it is something that is so simple yet so powerful and has resonated with me so strongly that I'm ripping them off. That's mine, too. Um, the other thing is, too, is that um, for me, um, I'm, I don't consider myself different, but I am, when I'm focused on something, you can't move me. And so I wake up every day with passion and commitment to being the best I can be, to being the best teammate I can be, to making the project I'm working on the best it can be, and to always, always supersede expectations. And what I've come to realize is that not everybody's like that. Not everybody is committed to collaboration. There are lots of people who like living in their silos. And if, you're, if you start veering into their lane, the territorial walls go up. I have no tolerance for that. I really don't. And and I've just I've I've gotten to the point where it's a non-starter for me. Now that requires additional due diligence. There are people I've done work with before who I would consider friends who I didn't do business due diligence on. And that's been a really important part of my learning curve because we have to be able to separate the type of friendship you have with somebody with the type of business relationship you will have with somebody. And so, you know, my approach in business now is I don't think there's anything wrong with doing business with friends, but if you're going to do it, you have to commit to doing the same type of thorough due diligence as to who they are as a business person to see if you're a fit. Due diligence is everything. And obviously, you, you can't possibly know everything unless you're in the relationship, 
but you can have conversations. You can speak with people who have done business with this person or worked on projects and get a sense for whether the personalities match, whether there is like commitment, there is like work ethic, and there is like uh, agreement on the value of a true collaboration, no matter what that looks like. And while it's easy to say when you're in the thick of it and people are used to driving in their own lane, there's a lot of times a residence to let people in with the understanding that we all have the same goal. We all have the same goal. So if a janitor comes up with a great idea, I am all for it, and I will sing their praises, and I don't care that you make minimum wage. If there is a high-level employee and, you know, there is a creative brainstorming in the mix, and somebody comes in and says, let's think about doing it differently, we all owe it to ourselves to go through that process and, and think of that's going to shift things. And so, you know, my, my business process has really started to crystallize over the last year. And, and while it, it sounds very hard and finite, for me, that sort of criteria is what I know will put me in the best environment to thrive and really enjoy my my daily grind that is amazing advice um i think it's very focused you know you just talked about being focused of all the things you just said the thing that resonated with me the most first i love being collaborative uh i've been on my own now i left the trailblazers uh 20 years ago so this is 20 years for me on my own and i love collaborating with different people it's one of the reasons i left there were a lot of people i wanted to collaborate with that i knew i wouldn't be able to if i had remained there but I think the thing that you said that struck me the most, because I've had this frustration, is when you're an entrepreneur and you start something, no one's ever going to have the same level of passion and commitment for it as you are. It's 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 yep. your thing. So the one thing that I appreciate about people like you and others that have moderated at Sports PR Summit is I love the focus and the passion that you bring to your conversations. And I appreciate that so much. I'll just say that now, Bonnie, is I really appreciate your preparation, your professionalism, your relationships that you have with people. Um, it's all noticed by me. But with that being said, when you have you know your production company or any business that you start, I think sometimes it's hard because – there's no one that's going to love it like we do. There's no one that's going to be committed to it like we are. And sometimes it can be frustrating if you work with people and you're like, gosh, they just don't have the same drive and passion towards this project that I do. And, and that can be a little bit frustrating. So the value of aligning yourself with people who have that same kind of passion, um, even if it's 75 percent of the of the passion that you have for a project is important. Yeah, but it's also important to... I mean, I just, I'm literally going through a project right now where I'm dealing with this. <clears throat> and what I appreciate about my relationship with you is that, you know, as, as we were putting this panel together, first, I, um, I really appreciate that you, that we were talking through this together. And we didn't necessarily see eye to eye on, you know, all of the panelists, but we talked through it. Ultimately, the way I view this particular situation is that, you're my client. So I always have to be mindful. Sure, I have my opinions. Hopefully they are opinions that are well-prepared and educated and passionate. But ultimately, you make the decision, and that needs to be okay. So there are different dynamics in relationships. There are certain situations where I have the ability to control, hey, if you're not going to be on my team, we're not going to work together. 
that situation, that dynamic is a little bit different when you are working with a client. And, and part of my personal growth process has been, you know, the client is writing your paycheck, right? So you do the best job you can, but ultimately if a client wants something that doesn't necessarily align with your vision, um, either you say, okay, you're the boss, we're going to do it your way, or you have to have the very, very difficult conversation that I, I appreciate this is your decision. Um, it's not something that I feel I can execute for you, so I need to step away. Sometimes a lot of people financially aren't in the position to do that, Brian, you know, like right. it, particularly if you're younger. And so, you know, I say this feeling fortunate that I'm in a position that I worked really hard when I was at the networks and I saved money and, and I'm going to be okay. Uh, but they're very difficult discussions to have. But ultimately, the most important thing is that whatever it is that you express, it's with conviction. The net of that experience is not something you should take personally. And as best as you can in any situation, try for that experience not to be divisive. Always try to be positive and appreciative and look at every situation as an opportunity to learn and grow and be better and smarter and more communicative and more collaborative the next time around. And so, you know, while I'm sort of going through this very process with um, a, a partner, not a client per se, but a partner, um, I, what I've learned is it's important to try to have this conversation about how they feel about collaboration before you get into bed with somebody. And if you have the ability to have that as, as some sort of um, point in your uh, letter of intent document or whatever that commitment document looks like, if you have the ability to include that language in there, that way it is documented, that's really helpful. But, but you know, it, it all comes back to what I said. It's, it's part of my learning process. Well, again, thank you for your collaboration and your professionalism on Sports PR Summit. Uh, you know, as I said before at the top of the interview, you're someone whose work I've admired from afar for a long time. So it's really been fun to get to know you the last few years and, and be able to work with you on this. Before I let you go, you are what I would call an expert on social media. I love following you on Twitter. I love following you on Instagram. You get tons of engagement I know our audience is always interested in hearing from people who have that kind of success on social media. So give me your, your recipe for success on social media. Hmm, that's an interesting one. I don't know that I actually have a recipe. I just like to experiment a lot. Um, in, in terms of engagement, so my largest platform right now is Twitter. But I also realize that Twitter um, has, I, I feel like it's become more a platform for information, even though they've really you know, pushed Periscope as uh, a live platform extension, and it's great. Um, but ultimately, we want people who are engaged. So for Twitter, one of the ways to improve engagement is to include a visual with your copy, whether that is a picture that's interesting, uh, interesting enough to warrant people to click on, or a link to a video, or what I do a lot, because I'm trying to build my Instagram platform, is I'll link to an Instagram. But what's that copy look like? Is that copy being constructed in such a way that I'm, it's the, the popular term these days is clickbait, but, but ultimately that's what it is. How am I constructing this copy to incentivize you, to make you say, oh, I want to click on this and check it out, you know? 
So that's one. Number two is ask questions. I, I love the fact that social media is a place where we can share our opinions, but people really appreciate when I let them know, I want, I want to know what your opinion is. It also keeps you safe in some sort of politically charged arenas, and I don't really delve too much into politics on my platform. I am very well aware of who my audience is, um, but I don't want to deny the fact that there's really important stuff going on in the world that is politically um, politically related. And so I ask, how do you feel about this? And that way it keeps me safe because I'm not necessarily voicing my opinion, but I let people know, hey, you're, you're my fans, you're my people. I want to know how you feel. Another way to do that is polls. Polls are highly interactive. Um, so I'm a big fan of polls too. Um, when it comes to Instagram, because it's a much more visual medium than Twitter is and, and Facebook too, um, I don't do a ton of live, but I do enjoy the storytelling. And um, I always use Tom Brady as an example. So Tom Brady wasn't exactly at the top of the social media mecca, but he decided at some point to start posting things about Giselle and his kids on Facebook. And his Facebook blew up because what we have the ability to do on social media as, as public-facing folks is cut the publicists out and, and let people into our lives. I don't necessarily think that my life is all that exciting, but, you know, I, I did something super cool yesterday, for example. So um, I am on the board of visitors for our journalism school at the University of Maryland. I was a, I was a journalism major, and, and being able to stay in touch with young folks who aspire to be in our industry is really important to me. Being able to shape in, in, in some small way what their curriculum looks like, it's just really exciting because our industry is evolving so much. And so one of the things that I've been trying to do is create opportunities for really rich experiences for our students. Um, Gail King at CBS this morning is a Maryland alum, and so I set up a meeting with her in the fall. I'd never met her before. I you know, shared a little bit about my background, how passionate I'm about our journalism students at Maryland. And, and at the end, the ask was, would you be willing to visit with you know, a handful of our best and brightest? And she agreed. And so yesterday, I was like the little kid documenting uh-huh. the students, the students, you know, walking, being in the control room. So I, I got shots of them in the control room. And then Oprah was a guest on CBS this morning. And I took this really cute video of them. They had just taken a picture with Oprah. And they're like shaking and sweating. I'm like, so how are you feeling right now? <laughs> like, we're sweating. Um, but just being able to take people behind the scenes, not only when I'm on the job, but things that are really meaningful to me in my personal life, there's no place else a fan can get that than on my feed. So, you know, when I think about how to create engagement and how to build audience, those are the sorts of things I like to, I guess, try to keep in mind. Bonnie Bernstein, you can follow her on Twitter at Bonnie Bernstein. You can learn all about her at BonnieBernstein.com. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. Really looking forward to your conversation at Sports PR Summit on May 22nd at the Players' Tribune in New York. And again, uh, it's been fun for me the last few years to become friends with you and, and get to collaborate with you. So thank you for that as well. 
If you didn't have a kid, I'd make you move to the East Coast. But you know, we'll, 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 we'll do what we can. We'll see each other when we can. And, and thank you again so much, Brian, sincerely, for um, having me on your podcast. I know lots of great folks have, have been on your pod before, and um, I, I can't wait till May 22nd. And, and I'm really keeping my fingers crossed that we come away from this panel with people feeling like it was really uh, impactful and positive experience and, and that we have some meaningful discussions. So. No, I know it's going to be meaningful, and I know people are going to walk away with uh, tangible things to take to their organization. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio is brought to you by MKTG. MKTG is a leading global lifestyle and marketing agency with 33 offices in 19 countries, including sports centers of excellence in New York, Paris, Madrid, Melbourne, and Tokyo. MKTG specializes in delivering strategic business-oriented marketing solutions for leading brands via sport and entertainment marketing, live experiences, retail marketing, hospitality, B2B engagement, and sponsorship marketing. Visit the MKTG website at mktg.com and review their insightful findings as part of their Decoding 2.0 study. Decoding 2.0 solidifies the need for a shift in thinking when selecting and marketing sport and lifestyle sponsorships. This unique study arms brand marketers with the quantitative data they need to specifically target those consumers most open to brand messaging and sponsorship, as well as provides a specific roadmap that identifies those tactics likely to produce the most receptive fans. Until now, the sponsorship industry has focused more on fan passion and avidity to identify sponsorships and develop activation strategies. Decoding 2.0 reveals the need to also understand the importance of fan receptivity. Follow MKTG on Twitter at MKTG. We'll bring MKTG's expertise to life during future segments on Sports Business Radio, so stay tuned for those. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our sports business radio roadshow. Follow them online at boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. Thanks to our friends at MKTG. You can find them on Twitter at MKTG. Their website is mktg.com. They're a global lifestyle marketing agency, 33 offices in 19 countries, a leading sports sponsorship and activation agency. Make sure to check them out at mktg.com. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio. We're rated in the top 50 business news podcasts. You can also find our show on Audio Boom via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps, and, of course, at sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. Follow us on Instagram at sportsbusinessradio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Bringing you the biggest names in sports business. Without further ado, we all know this gentleman. Let's give David Stern a big round of applause. Let's welcome the president of the NCAA, Mark Emmert. Give him a hand. Let's give a big hand to USC alum and co-owner of the Lakers and president of the Lakers, Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. Thank you so, so much for having me, Brian. It was very, very kind, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. Sir Charles, how are you? 
I'm doing good, man. How you doing this morning? Today's guest is Memphis Grizzlies head coach David Fisdale. You're the man, Bart. My guest is tennis icon Chris Everett. It was very interesting. You asked great questions, so thank you very much, Brian. Pleased to welcome to the show Kyrie Irving, the number one pick in the 2011 NBA draft. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be joined by Pete Carroll, the executive VP of football operations and the head football coach of the Seattle Seahawks. Coach, how are you? Doing good. What's going on? Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio.